Welcome to the Rapid Change Matters podcast. My name is Howard Cooper, and for over 14 years now, I've been fascinated with helping people to create personal change quickly. But I still come across many who believe that lasting personal change has to take a long time, consisting of reliving traumas or deep psychological analysis, or simply that flawed notion that understanding why you have a problem will somehow make it go away. I'm on a mission to get people who work therapeutically with others to shift their thinking and realize that these beliefs are not written in stone. Rapid change can happen. So, to help you open up to what's possible, I'm interviewing top therapists and agents of change who are out there getting real results with real people really quickly. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to let you know that I've written a quick-to-read, downloadable PDF on five strategies to amplify your client's response, with some great tips on getting your therapeutic suggestions to really sizzle. You can download this for free from rapidchange.works, where you can also find all the information about this episode and episodes still to come. Now, over to the interview. This week's guest, Judy Reese, has expertise in teaching the tools of practical clean language, a powerful methodology for inquiry that many change workers can bolt onto their existing tools to amplify their results. She's the co-author of the best-selling book on the topic, Clean Language, Revealing Metaphors and Opening Minds. And whilst not a therapist, she is known for her ability to facilitate rapid change using the power of hidden metaphors with individuals and with groups. Welcome to the Rapid Change Conversation, Judy. Hello. Great to be here. It's absolutely fantastic to have you. I'm wondering if we can jump straight in and uh, if you could tell uh, us uh, and our listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do and really how you got started. Okay, well, I'm known for my involvement in clean language, um, which is a change work methodology devised by the late David Grove. Um, My background is that I was a news journalist for many years. and I got started in clean language by all sorts of accidents. Basically, uh, um, the woman who became the co-author of the book Clean Language, Revealing Metaphors and Opening Minds, Wendy Sullivan, needed someone to help her with her uh, marketing and publicity just at the point where I got made redundant from my job at Teletext. Mm-hmm. And uh, a series of accidents of history, I ended up in business with her and becoming her apprentice and so on and so forth. Um, nowadays, what I love to do with clean language is use it to help um, teams to work better together so particularly um, remotely based teams distributed teams and to a, to some extent it's that's mostly in the sort of software industry and creative industries um, but I also do coaching and I also teach clean language to all kinds of change agents including hypnotists and including coaches um, not usually to therapists because I'm not a therapist and um, I'm not really certain I agree with, in inverted commas, the therapy project. I'm curious uh, about clean language and would love you to tell uh, us, as though we, you know, if we hadn't come across this before and there were people out there that are going, what is this clean language? How would you describe it? What would you tell people it is? Well, the first thing I do is tell, it what, tell people what it does. So six of the things that you can do with clean language. You can find out stuff that people already know. You can harvest known information. You can explore stuff that they don't know that they know. So um, the unconscious knowledge, if you like. Mm -hmm. 
you can shift people's emotional states. And there are all kinds of reasons you might want to do that in change work. You can motivate people to change. You can use it to give and get really good, useful feedback. And you can, and all of that, in the process of doing that, you can enhance relationships between people. So that that's sort of six ways, six of the ways that you can use clean language. And that's what I always say first. If I could teach you one way of doing things that could do all of that, harvest known information, explore unknown knowns, shift emotional states, motivate people to change, give and get good feedback, enhance relationships, would that be of value to you? At that point, they're usually more interested in finding out what clean language is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Absolutely. So clean language is an inquiry methodology. It's a way of um, asking people about what's true for them and a way of listening to the answers in a way that generates the next question. And it was designed originally to work with the metaphors which underpin people's thinking that drive their behavior and that spill out accidentally in the language they use. Mm -hmm. um, and David Grove realized that those metaphors could be used as a powerful lever for change. So I, I'm fascinated because on the on your website you talk about uh, there's a phrase which is said it's not it's not even about language. Mm. It's nothing to do with language. Well, it's it's only peripherally to do with language. So what we're working with in clean language is the metaphors which underpin your thinking, mm -hmm. not the metaphors that. So the metaphors that occur in language, in speech, or in writing are a side effect of the metaphors in your unconscious thinking. So, for example, it's pretty universal, not absolutely 100% universal all the time, but for most people, important things are big. Mm -hmm. So when something is big, we regard it as important. So uh, in our metaphorical unconscious world, those two things are compared and contrasted. So that's all I mean by a metaphor is one kind of thing being compared to another kind of thing. So important things are big is in there at a very profound level. So when we use a phrase like, oh, that's a, a, a big deal. We're not doing it because we're carefully thinking and calculating. Oh, would, would size be a useful metaphor to to reflect the importance of this thing? No, it. The metaphor is there before it turns into language. Where, where do the metaphors come from? Do they grow culturally or from personal experience or all of the above? All of the above. So basically, um, when, when we're even single celled organisms use metaphor as a way of thinking. Now, that sounds a bit far fetched, but um, if you think about it, a single celled organism is able to, to have a desire to move towards and desire to move away from mm -hmm. using desire in a metaphorical words because I, I don't suppose single-celled organisms really feel desire <laughs> but they do move towards and away from so they are equating the experience that they're currently having with other experiences they've previously had and with other experiences that their ancestors have previously had so they're comparing what's happening now to what has previously happened. And this situation is either, in inverted commas, nice, so we move towards it, or in inverted commas, nasty, so we move away. 
And so if single-celled organisms are thinking in terms of uh, metaphor, how much more so human beings? So when we're tiny babies, um, we discover that uh, love and warmth often go together. So we equate love and warmth. And so that... And, and that is reinforced by our experiences, by our cultural values, to the extent that by the time we are undergraduate students, if we're asked to carry a warm drink up in the lift, the next person we meet will think they are friendlier than if we carry a cold drink. That's, I mean, I've heard examples of that in the context of priming. Yeah, um, uh, uncon unconscious yeah. priming but I haven't heard it said so eloquently in terms of where that, that comes from this idea that, that love and warmth even from being a baby gets associated there's some kind of complex equivalence or meaning connection mm. between the two and using the phrase complex equivalence um, will we'll catch the attention of, of the hypnotists in the audience and the NLPs in the audience but it, it is that kind of thing we are forming equivalences this mm. is like that and as we and, and clean language, which is a questioning and listening system, um, uses the the both the linguistic expression of those metaphors, but also the physical expression of those metaphors. So gestures, um, that kind of thing um, to find out more about, well, what are the equivalences in this particular unique person's unconscious system hmm. and help the person themselves become aware of those equivalences. And there's something very beautiful that happens when somebody becomes aware for themselves of how they've been thinking about stuff. It, it can be very, very revealing. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not like you have one set of these things that um, you, once you discover them, um, that's it, job done. I've been working with clean language for a, a long time, certainly more than 10 years. And um, only the other day I had a, a big realization when my husband asked me a clean language question. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking about um, a, a collaboration. I'm involved. We're, we're both involved in collaborating with, with another friend on a business project. And I was saying that um, he asked me when, when this project goes just as you would like, it would be like, what? Um, and I said, well, if like building Lego models um, together, we're not trying to build the Death Star. It's not that complicated, but we are trying to combine our Lego models. And then I realized that the thing I feared was my Lego models being broken down into their component parts and scattered around the sitting room for people to tread on. Mm -hmm. While the, and, and then just a, a few little snaps snatches of those models being attached to someone else's model um and that was a big deal for me i once i realized that i could face my fear but previously i hadn't been aware that i was frightened of that so it, it's it's interesting um hearing you say that and there's a phrase uh, certainly that, that that all the nlpers will be um familiar with which is the map is not the territory and this mm. idea of uncovering someone's map of the world essentially mm. um, and it strikes me that what you're, you're talking about is that clean language is a very powerful tool for ele elegantly discovering what that map of the world is 
but almost in a way of getting them to realise it is just a map or that the system becomes aware of itself. Is that? Yes. So so James Lawley, who is very big in the world of clean language, he um, and, and his wife, Penny Tompkins, I think it's a joint article. I'm not sure. It might just James. But they define um, different levels of modelling using clean language. So you can use clean language just for you as the interviewer to find out about their stuff. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, the interviewer is the one who wants to know and the client is not very interested. So, for example, you might use it in market research or academic research. Um, Then you can have situations where both of you want to know. So, for example, where uh, you're working with a team or, or where you're a member of a team. In that example I was just talking about, about the Lego models, we were asking each other about our metaphors. That's because both I want to know and they want to know. Because we're working together, it's really handy to know, um, for example, things like when you're working at your best, you're like what? So often I ask that of a team and somebody will say, I'm like an express train and somebody else will say, I'm like a butterfly. And then you start to realize why these two people are not quite communicating very effectively. (laughs) But the third way of um, modeling using clean language is what James and Penny call therapeutic modeling. Um, which is where the the primary purpose is for the system to become aware of itself. So as the facilitator, my only job is to help them figure it out for themselves. And that's what you might call pure clean. That's where clean language originated. David's idea was that the therapist, in his case, or coach or facilitator in the people I train, um, it's their job to really put their put their agenda to one side and place themselves in the service of the client for the for the for the duration of the session. Um, and that process of the the facilitator asking them questions, directing their attention, minimizing content input, and just allowing the client to discover mm. um, that is itself. A therapeutic process so how and it, this may be a very naive uh, dare I say or even idiotic question but how does the system becoming aware of itself uh, and directing the, the facilitating their attention moving um, ultimately create change I don't know <laughs> I don't know how it works mm. but I know it does work so um, I, I, I can observe it in myself, I can observe it in other people, that when they become aware of what's going on, stuff happens. Now, sometimes stuff happens because they, oh, because I'm eating that, that's producing that, therefore I shall change what I'm eating. You know, that that kind of change. Yeah. Or, sometimes in clean language, it's as if the system, the unconscious system, takes over and once it becomes aware of what what the desired change is, um, things just shift and change. And this is when it gets really exciting and interesting to be a clean language facilitator. So let, let me give an example. I was uh, I had a coaching client one time, and um, in his metaphoric world, let's let's ignore what this was all about. But in his metaphoric world, it was like all the stuff was like bricks and blocks scattered around a field. 
and there were 20 or 30 of these bricks or blocks, like a child's building set, uh, scattered all around this field. And I asked him questions, more and more questions about uh, what, uh, you know, what kind of blocks, are there anything else about those blocks, um, whereabouts of the blocks, and what would the blocks like to have happen, and what would you like to have happen, and you know, all, all clean language questions about this stuff. There is a system to what you ask. Hmm. Um, but at a certain point, he just went, oh! <laughs> I said, what just happened? He said, the, the blocks just picked themselves up and formed themselves into a staircase. Now, <laughs> I'm not saying that happens every time in a clean language sessions, but it happens often enough to, to, to report it as a, a fairly normal feature. And it's that, oh, you think um, that you're listening for because mm. you realize that that's the moment when their reality has changed. And it seems as if when the metaphor changes, so when in this case the, the blocks form themselves into a staircase, everything changes. So I can't, yeah, I'm not going to share the content, but let's, let's make some content up. Mm. Um, these blocks, which might be disparate um, aspects of a person's life and they're not sure where to go in their career or whatever, they form themselves into a staircase. Well, that suggests that one can simply walk up the staircase into one's new life. Yeah. In this particular client's instance, the um, the metaphor then extended and a, a, a fiery portal opened at the top of the stairs, which he was able to walk through metaphorically in his imagination, and everything then changed. So it's, it's really fascinating because... You know, people I've heard talk, I've had NLPers on here talk about, you know, structure of change happens when internal representations shift. Mm. So some you know, NLPers might do it very structurally in terms of literally changing, you know, the submodalities of an internal representation. But what you're talking about almost seems very akin to, to that, but almost that the, the changes are more spontaneous and come from them. Exactly. So as the facilitator, I'm not saying... Oh, have you thought about picking up all those blocks and stacking them into a staircase? I'm letting the, the, the client's system become aware of itself and to take the action that it needs to take to sort itself out. So I'm, I'm curious, as I'm talking to you about um, something that we talked just before we started actually recording, um, and I told you that I'd, I'd just done a, in fact, it was actually the last episode with a lady called Christine Black, the, the podcast went out, and she's a very intuitive change worker who talks about the fact that she often knows the piece to change because she said she hears it differently. It's like something popped out as they talked, uh, as they as they were telling their story, which seemed like an unconscious slip of the tongue, almost. And it, it, she, she said for her, it's like everything's in blue, all the words, and there's this big red mark over a couple of the things, and she knows that's where it is to follow um and you, you also said that you kind of resonated with that um and that you hear things differently some things are marked out certainly in some way and i'm curious as to how that process works for you whether it's intuition whether it's intuition over time from the training that you've done and really how clean language has helped you to get good at that kind of thing yeah i wouldn't ordinarily describe it as intuition so much mm. i think when you're listening well, um, things do become clearer 
you when you're listening well you'll notice certain aspects of what the person is saying are marked out by them um you'll notice that certain metaphors for example recur mm-hmm. um and those are my, my working assumption tends to be that those might be the places to go with my questions but what i'm looking for from the client is um for them to become aware of those words they're using and then to tell me either the conscious them or the unconscious them to tell me that that's where to go um so i will ask questions like what would those blocks like to have happen um to find out you know is there some you know which which is the thread that the client would like to pull on i've got some hunches but i i i'm i i stop short of saying oh i intuitively know it must be that bit there um yeah. i want them to to tell me which bit to pull on so when you say that you know you're listening for some of the things that they mark out how specifically do they mark them out it depends it depends very much on the client often they'll they go, oh, I've got it. It's like, or it might be meta comments. They, they might step back from what they're saying and, and say, oh, that's a funny, funny metaphor, isn't it? So, so you're literally listening for them to, to label it, to yeah. mark it. Um, so that, that's the, I suppose, the, the clearest way. Um, when people are first starting out with this stuff, there, there are much simpler ways of saying, well, which are the most sensible things to pay attention to? So we pay, pay it as you're a beginner with clean language. We say um, always pay attention to outcomes and positive resources in preference to problems and uh, difficulties. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, every you know, it's, it, it will make a much happier experience for everybody if you pay attention to the, the, the outcomes, the desired outcomes and the, uh, the, the positive resources. Um, and then there are systems for, for structuring a question pattern. So there's a system called the framework for change, or there's a model called the, the five minute coach model that basically define which questions you would ask about what about and when. Hmm. Um, so you don't need to rely on hunches and intuition when you're first starting with this game. It's interesting because one of the first things I remember uh, resonating with when I was first starting change work was this idea that, you know, um, there are top therapists out there, top change workers out there who are, when you say, how are you doing that? They'll turn around and say, well, you know, I I just follow my intuition. And the problem being is that that's not massively helpful if you want to learn something. Because mm. how do you learn someone else's intuition? Um, which kind of seems to me like a fundamental place where things like NLP started in its core because it's set aside, set out with this idea of, well, how do we formalize or teach other people someone else's intuitions? So mm. um, I, I love the fact that, you know, um, you, you don't think of this as, as intuition. You know, you see it as a, a formalized set of, of approach that you can get good at and that you can pay attention to. And And of course, that's not accidental. So the story is that David Grove um, was doing brilliant work with with, uh, psychotherapy clients when 
Penny and James bumped into him and decided that they wanted to do a huge NLP modeling project on him. Mm. So the version of clean language that I use and I teach, which is Penny and James's model of David's work, is, you know, connected to NLP at, at multiple points. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, so at that time, Penny and James were the people who ran the London NLP practice group when it existed. Um, so, so that NLP was absolutely in their system. What they didn't know at that time, and what is still disputed nowadays, is to what extent David Grove had known NLP before he created Clean Language. Mm-hmm. And that gets very amusing because actually he had known NLP first, then um, fell out with NLP in various ways, as a lot of people did in that, that time. Hmm. and went off and did his own thing, clean language, by taking an NLP idea that the you don't want to put your stuff into the client's map, you want to, to separate your stuff from the client's stuff, so how clean can I make it? How can I take that to the logical extreme? Um, and that's where clean language came from. It's really fascinating and ties in with something that you said on um, the rapid fire round. There's a misnomer perhaps that clean language is not about removing influence a lot of people so because you've got this name clean language the implication is that it is possible or the implication some people draw is that it's possible to be completely clean all the time saying it's possible to be completely clean and it's 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 obviously not the case every time two people are in communication with each other they're influencing each other even if you're both silent even if you're even if one of them is dead. They were influencing each other. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, you, you can't not influence. You can make it a, a discipline for yourself to attempt to minimise the content imposition that you're, you're putting into the mixture. Mm-hmm. And what David's work and the work of his collaborators over the years have produced is a a much deeper understanding of how we're influencing people, even when we think we're not influencing. So James Lawley has done quite a bit of work about how to clean up, in inverted commas, academic research questionnaires, which the academics thought were completely clean. But James was able to demonstrate that they were full of influence all the way through. (laughs) If the situation is such that the weight of the clipboard that you hand the survey to the other person, that weight of that clipboard will influence how important they think the survey is. So this, the, the priming research, the stuff you were talking about, um, it has demonstrated that a heavy clipboard, people will spend more time completing the survey than if they're given a flimsy bit of cardboard. Hmm. Because they think it's more important. If they're given a heavy, hardback book, they regard as more important than a flimsy uh, paperback. So if if those kind of things can influence the outcome of a survey, the casually created survey questions that people have been using in mar- in academic research and so much so much other research for for years are just influencing people all over the place. So, so James has developed a methodology where he can run an academic piece of research 
an academic survey through a, a, a cleaner, basically, and mm-hmm. give, give you a rating as to how clean your survey is. So just just changing tracks a little bit, I'm, I'm curious as to how you learnt to get good at this stuff. And now, after a process of learning, how consciously aware you are of what you're doing or whether, you know, it, it's just been trained in. Mm. So I got involved. So I, I had a, a, a natural advantage in learning clean language because I was already a journalist, mm-hmm. but I was already a journalist of a particular kind. I was a journalist of a kind that believed that um, everybody's got a story and it was my job to help them to tell it. Um, so I was a very good interviewer of, um, what you might call ordinary people. I wasn't a celebrity interviewer. I was, a um, an interviewer of the man in the street. Mm. I was, I would often literally go out to do what they used to call vox pops, where you, you just talk to a dozen people who happen to be in the street and that makes an article as they respond to some issue of the day. Yeah. Um, or I, you know, going to interview people who'd been involved in accidents and all those kind of things. So very ordinary people and they all have great stories and my job is to help them to tell it. So I was already listening and uh, paying a lot of attention to the words people were using and also the metaphors that people were using. Because as a, as a reporter, when you, if you've got a really nice metaphor for what they're talking about, you've probably got your headline. Mm-hmm. So once upon a time, the phrase sick as a parrot was an original headline um, on a story. Um, you know, because metaphors carry so much um, meaning and they, they help other people get a gri- grip of what it is the person's talking about. If, you know, you, you even quite a, a silly metaphor like sick as a parrot, um, you, you have some kind of sense of what that is. Uh, but certainly if somebody's uh, the, if the blocks representing somebody's life form themselves into a, uh, a staircase and then a, a fiery portal, you, we all probably feel we have some idea of what that means to them. Hmm. So all of that was part of what I had already done by the time I came across clean language. I encountered it on an NLP training. There was a one day chunk of clean language in amongst the training and I was quite excited by it. Um but I wasn't as hooked as I became later. What happened in the intervening period was I'd got very heavily into the technical side of teletext, and um, but we were trying to take old-fashioned analog teletext and put it onto digital platforms, onto the web, onto mobile phones, onto digital TV, and that involved a lot of technical work. And I got involved in that at quite a deep level for a journalist. And but we failed. So basically, we did not succeed. We end up a lot of people were made redundant. I was one of them. And very soon after that, I got deeply into clean language. And one of the things that dawned on me was that if we in the technical teams had had clean language to use to understand each other, to understand the products we were trying to create, to understand our audiences, we probably would not have failed as spectacularly as we did. We might even have succeeded. If we'd succeeded, I'd have kept the job that I loved. And it, that kind of, this could be really useful outside of the therapeutic thing was got, what got caught, caught me into it. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time I first came into it, clean was very definitely primarily a therapeutic methodology. 
and only just really beginning to be a coaching methodology. Hmm. Um, and I was saying, this could be so useful for, for, for other people. Um, Caitlin Walker up in the, the Northwest was using it with groups, but they were principally groups of disaffected teenagers. She was, she was only just starting to use it in businesses. Um, and I didn't know then, I know now, but she, she actually had a background in software development. And nowadays, there are all sorts of connections into the, into the software world with this stuff. Now, when you're working with someone, um, how conscious you are of you know, using the particular patterns or whether it's just come from doing it for so long in terms of training? Typically, I'm pretty conscious of the particular patterns. I'm usually following a framework quite closely mm -hmm. um, with the ability to move off it if, if it seems necessary. But the frameworks I use are pretty robust and also pretty flexible. So I don't feel like they're restraining me in any way. It feels like they're, they're like a handrail. Yeah. Um, that if I'm following to the framework reasonably closely, we won't get lost. And that's actually quite important. I know from um, hearing my students' experience that particularly when people are first starting with clean language, they can get lost. They can get fascinated by people's metaphor landscapes. That's what, what we call this, the stuff that happens in people's heads metaphorically. Um, or people's systems metaphorically, I should say, because mostly it's not all in the head. There's mostly lots in the body and in the area around the person. Um, do I talk about psychogeography? We might come back to that. Um, so facilitators can get fascinated by aspects of what um, the client is talking about. And that fascination can lead them astray. And they end up not doing what the client wants, if, if we're talking about therapeutic modeling, hmm. or not doing what they intended to do, if we're talking about research interview, or not doing what's best for the whole team, if we're talking about a team or group intervention. They just get bogged down in some specific thing that they intuit is important. So I don't want to be following intuition. I want to be able, if somebody challenges me later, why did you ask me about that? I would like to be able to tell the client why, that, why I asked that. And for me, staying close to a framework makes that more straightforward. It's interesting because it, it's, it seems similar to what we were saying earlier about, you know, you um, notice what they mark out and they will give you hunches as to where to follow. And it sounds like the, 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 the problem when you're starting out is that you're kind of you're, you're doing the clean language stuff without necessarily following the hunches or, the, or following what they mark out. So you can get a bit lost without a direction. Is that fair to say? Yes, and you, it's not just that you – part of the whole thing with clean is you want the client to take the lead. You want them to take responsibility. You want them to, to be self-activating, self-actualizing. So if for me to take the lead is the wrong way. Mm -hmm. I take the lead only as far as I need to take it in order for them to take it. If yeah. that makes any kind of sense. It does. It does indeed. But the thing that does not yet make sense to me is the phrase psychogeography, which uh, seems fascinating. So I'm curious as to, to what that is and how that weaves into everything. Let me try asking you a couple of questions, if I may. Would that be OK? Absolutely. Okay. So when it weaves into everything, 
what kind of weaves is that weaves for you? Um, that's a good question. Um, it, it's it's a weaving that that fits and makes sense with all of the other strands that mm. that have come together so far. So it's a weaving that fits and makes sense with all of the other strands. And I wish I could see you at this point, but since this would be audio only, that would be cheating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when the other strands, what kind of other strands? I, I, I actually, I can see them in my head um, as they're different colours. We've got a, a, a red one and a slightly greeny mottled one coming from different angles and different textures and they're kind of they're literally sewn together like a, like I'm creating a blanket and it's like the podcast that we're creating now is is a blanket that has different themes and ideas running through it mm-hmm. so there's a red one and a greeny mottled one and just to ask about the psychogeography of this they're coming from different angles hmm. whereabouts are those different angles yeah we've got one upper left and it's coming down and there's one bottom right coming up and they're kind of meeting and when you said psychogeography for me that was like a yellow one coming from somewhere else and I don't know yet how it's going to weave around the other two Mm -hmm. so thank you for that that that's enough to demonstrate what I'm talking about Mm -hmm. so what you've just talked about is a spatial relationship between the different thingies in this case, strands, mm-hmm. which exist in your imagination or in your system. Mm-hmm. And if I'd gone on to ask more questions about where they are, you'd have been, a- and if if I could see you, you'd, be, you'd probably be able to point to them. I was pointing, and you yeah. couldn't see me, but I, I, I was pointing, <laughs> yeah. And e- even before you asked me where specifically, which I, I presume we did for the, the benefit of the audio uh, take, I, 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 was, uh, I knew where they were. Mm. Now... Isn't this interesting? We, when we have thoughts, we have them somewhere. They, they have location. Mm. This is because we are not disembodied brains in jars. We are physical human beings, and physical human beings have evolved to relate to space. So all our thoughts have geography. That's what psychogeography is. So if you can help people, and, and it, it goes way beyond submodality because it works in all the modalities. So I think you, you, I think you said you were doing it um, visually. I think the implication of describing colors, red and greeny mottled, yep. is that you, you had some kind of visual of this. But it doesn't have to be visual. You can detect where things are by sound, by touch, by smell, by taste even, hmm. and certainly by proprioception. Um, you can have a sort of sense of where things are, even when you can't see them, hear them, touch them. Psychogeography is, is just a thing. It's not unique to clean language, but clean language helps to make it clear and vivid. And when it is clear and vivid like that, then the person's relationship to their inner stuff is much more accessible than if you're just talking about words 
Um, in this case, we were just talking about a trivial word that you, you'd used in a, a very ordinary sentence. Um, yet just a few questions in, and we had this really vivid description of where things were in relation to each other and how they how they hooked together, how they wove together. Mm. And I, I nearly even used the word, yes, it was like a, like a rich tapestry and realised I was... <laughs> I was just extending the metaphor even further without... Um, I'm just going to double check. Um, have you ever been asked clean language questions about this specific aspect of how you weave, how things are woven together for you? Before? No, never, never. I'm, I'm a, a first time. It feels like that question that, that magicians ask, isn't it? You know, when they bring a helper up from the stage and they say, well, we haven't met before, have we? That's right. We have no, no. It's uh, no. So this was yeah. This is genuinely the first time that I've ever been asked about that. And these were just uh, the, the the thoughts that popped up as, as as we were talking about it. And so imagine how much more that would, well, how much more impact that would have if we were actually talking about something which had um, actual real importance to you in terms of you know a piece of change that you wanted to happen or, or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I think that A, that's a, a very valuable point. And also it demonstrates what you were saying earlier about that, you know, if you were starting, you can get you could get quite lost quite deep into metaphors that perhaps aren't are interesting and useful and, and are rich, but without necessarily moving them in a or helping them move in a direction mm. that, that's because, useful. You know, if, if this was the first, you know, if you thought, oh, just try a clean language question. This is the first time you'd ever tried it. And you, you, you hear all that information coming out you think wow this must be a unique thing that you know let's find everything we can about this this blanket and these strands yeah but it's not unique everything we think about has got this stuff underneath it that that's really 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 cool and and very i'm pleased that you 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 asked those questions and did that just now because i think it really gives a I was going to say, I've got to watch my words now very carefully. I was going to say it gives a flavour for what we're talking about. but uh... <laughs> I've been doing this for a lot of years now, and there is nothing that I've found that I can do to stop myself stumbling over my words. When I start doing this, uh, everything's metaphor. There are six metaphors a minute thing. Yeah. Um, because as we're using six metaphors a minute. Once you start to hear them, you go, blimey, six, stumbling, weave. Strands, clover. Yeah, they're everywhere, and it completely gives the lie to the notion that I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe and some of the listeners will will be younger than significantly younger than me, but certainly when I was at school, we were all taught that metaphor was something that great orators used, that uh, great artists and writers. It was some a special skill mm. that. Um, that that the greats had was to be a master of Aristotle said um, be a master of metaphor was was the skill that marked out the greats but the truth is we're all using metaphors all the time it's at that little level utterly trivial and yet it holds this you know hidden within that this enormous world it's completely TARDIS like I can feel myself now vetting my every thought and uh, and realizing I probably just need to let go of that because it's it's happening all the time and that, that, that's the point, you know. Um, Judy, are there any other than than, than your book, uh, which obviously we're going to put links on, onto the website for? Are there any other books that you recommend people read if they want to get good at this stuff? 
Well, there are lots now, which is great. It's, it's a field which is um, progressing rapidly and where we've got a bunch of really good books that have come out in the last couple of years. It depends where what you want to do with it, which to choose. Mm-hmm. If you want to work with groups, then you want Caitlin Walker's book, um, From Contempt to Curiosity, and or Julie McCracken's book, Clean Language in the Classroom. Now, Julie's book is obviously great if you're you're a teacher or you work with children and or if you're a parent, and you have children. But it also has huge amounts of activities that work with adult groups. Yeah. So clean language in the classroom is probably the most accessible groups book. Um, if you're um, a coach, then you might choose Marion Way's book, Clean Approaches for Coaches and or. Um, the book The Five Minute Coach by um, Lynn Cooper and Mariette Castellino. Yep. Uh, all of those are good. If you are a body worker, so if you do anything physical, whether you're in the medical professions or in alternative complementary health, um, Nick Pohl's book Words That Touch is excellent. If people are enjoying um, this idea of clean language and, and what you have to say and they want to get in touch with you, they want to find out more, where can they go? How can they get in touch? They should go to judyreese.co.uk mm-hmm. and on there you can find a free ebook called Your Clean Language Questions Answered. Yes. Which will ask, answer lots of the questions that you haven't asked. And um, that will also help you to, so when you sign up for that, then that will, that will be a fiery portal into some <laughs> of the other, other options you have if you want to go deeper with this. There, there are, I do various online recorded courses. I do live courses. Um, there are lots of things you can do depending on your level of interest and where you want to start. And, of course, if you want to book me for a coaching session, I'm available. <laughs> Fantastic. For me, this is a, a, a real kind of flavour and insight into to some of the work you do to introduce people into this way of uh, working um, and I've really enjoyed it and I'd also like to, to do a, a shout out because uh, to a gentleman called Dan Rollins who was the, yeah there we go who um, who was the, the person I saw uh, on Facebook who follows uh, follows rapid change works thank you for that Dan um, but also started posting about how good some of the material was that you, you put out and it really made me sort of connect the two and think, you know, you, you'd be great to, to, to have on and to connect with. And, and absolutely, it was a, a great call, Dan, so thanks for that. And I've really enjoyed, um, you know, talking to you, Judy, uh, and hearing all that. And it's certainly, I've got a number of books and things that I now want to go and uh, read and develop and think about. And you may yet discover me on some of your training courses. Uh, having, that would be fantastic. Uh, this. So, Judy, thank you so much, um, and uh, yeah, really value your time today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, why not share it with anyone you think might be interested, and even head over to iTunes to give us a glowing review. You'll find more about what's coming up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash rapidchangeworks. And, of course, you'll find all the links related to this episode, plus those free five steps to getting your suggestions to sizzle over at rapidchange.works.